Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 5, Episode 37 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. But the question is, what can we do as a team now that might make a difference, that we have a slightly better working environment moving forward? And we've, we've seen examples where teams have changed processes in terms of how work is done so that you know people have a better understanding of what they do or something's done a little bit more efficiently. We've seen examples where people have changed things like rest facilities so that actually we can focus more about being able to self-care. We've seen examples where people have changed rostering system to say, do you know what, we can, we can create a better roster so that we have better control about when we work and are therefore a better work-life balance and everyone's happier on, on the back of that. So these are examples where people have said, these are little things that we can do that make actually a difference to the work experience of everyone in this team or this department or this ward. PCBiz for the festive season, we're looking back at some of our fabulous expert guests over 2023. Our first People Soup Rewind is with Dr. Kevin Teo, friend of the show. In my Spotify wrapped for podcasters this year, this was the most popular episode, and quite rightly so. So it definitely deserves another airing, and I hope you all enjoy it. It's a definite Christmas treat. P-Supers, I'm delighted to bring you part two of my chat with Dr. Kevin Teo. Kevin is a senior lecturer and the program director for the MSc in Organisational Psychology at Birkbeck, University of London. If you haven't listened to part one, I'd recommend it and you can catch it wherever you get your podcasts. Kevin is also the executive officer of the European Academy of Occupational Health Psychology. In part two of our chat, we focus on Kevin's research and his thoughts on how workplaces are designed, organised and managed, what's known as the psychosocial context or the psychosocial working conditions. And at the end of the day, what we're really trying to develop is a healthy workplace. Such is Kevin's generosity in sharing his thoughts that this whole episode is like a banquet of takeaways. To hear Kevin speak is really thought-provoking, and you'll hear him talk about his consulting approach, the workplace themes he's noticing, how organisations can sometimes see well-being as a tick-box exercise, and his simple recommendations for a step-by-step approach to organisational health. Now, for those of you who are new to PeopleSoup, we're an award-winning podcast where we share evidence-based behavioural science in a way that's practical, accessible and fun. Our mission is to unlock workplace potential with expert perspectives from contextual behavioural science. Let's just scoot over to the news desk because reviews are in for part one of my chat with Kevin. On LinkedIn, Lewis Burton said, A great discussion, Ross. So glad to hear a discussion around the potential of using ACT to develop teams and working environments. And we had a tweet from friend of the show, Melanie LeBarry, who's currently appearing in And Juliet on Broadway. So if you're in the vicinity of the Big Apple, check it out. It's getting rave reviews. Melanie said, Favourite people talking about important things. Thank you for another cracking podcast with the inimitable Kevin Teo. And on LinkedIn, Joe Yarker said, What a brilliant interview. It's always great to hear Kevin Teo shine a light on prevention and all things working conditions at healthy workplaces. Thanks so much to everyone who listened, rated and reviewed, talked about it with a friend, recommended the podcast. With your help and spreading the message, we can reach more people with stuff that could be really useful. But for now, get a brew on and have a listen to part two of my chat with Kevin Teo. 
So, Kevin, I, I listed off a few of your research papers from last year with your colleagues, and we just spoke earlier about empowering workers and giving them a voice. Maybe that's a way into your research. Why, why is that important to you? I think because when we talk about, as individuals, what, what we need in the first part, we talked about ABCs. That's basically self-determination theory autonomy, belonging, competence. And I think having that participation approach facilitates that. It gives people that autonomy, that voice. It gives people that sense of belonging. And, and often through our work, we ask people about, you know, what can we do? What can you do? And it tries to facilitate that, that feeling of, of competence as well. And we, we try and address basically psychosocial working conditions. So how workplaces are designed, organized and managed. And yes, you can measure that. And there are lots of really good instruments and resources around that. The Health and Safety Executive, for example, have uh, a whole suite of resources. But often it's the individual and the people who work in the environment who knows the environment best. And sometimes I think it's almost condescending for an external person to come in and say, these are the problems that you're having and this is the solution that you need. When it's a lot more powerful to go in and say, look, tell me about your working environment. What do you think the problems are? What do you think the challenges are? And what can we do about this? And let's try to facilitate a conversation that way because I think that is gonna, you're gonna get a lot more people on board earlier on and therefore that yeah, gives you a good grounding and foundation to, to progress. So it's making the people the kind of architects of the solution as well as giving them a voice to explore what's going on. Very much so. So when we talk about having a more primary organizational perspective to, to managing well-being in the workplace, it is, it is about that, to say, well, actually, what are you struggling with? What can we perhaps do about that? And I think the voice of the employee is so important because they know what the issues are, they know what the barriers are, they know what the resources are that, that might be needed. And, and our role is often to facilitate that conversation. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. It's, when I go into an organisation, I very much take the stance of, you're the expert in your job and delivering your job and being you. I'm not an expert in any of that. And I can bring my curiosity and, if it's appropriate, bring, bring the cultivation of skills to you. But I'm not going to tell you that the answer because that would be impudent, I would say. Exactly. And I think we, we have, with well-being being so, I'll say for lack of a better word, popular. You know, it's an initiative that lots of organizations are working on and that should be commended and that should be encouraged. But on the back of that, we see lots of providers offering all sorts of things. Some of it really good, some of it questionable. But even things which are really good in the wrong context is not going to be appropriate. You know, a, a simple illustration that I, I say, you, you know, you, you might have a, a toolbox with a hammer and a screwdriver and a drill and they're all useful and they're all really good. But if, if you're trying to screw in a screw into a wall and you've got a hammer, that really good hammer is not going to be the answer to the solution. And, and equally, if you've been trained to use a hammer and that's the only thing that you can do, you're going to see everything as a nail. Yeah, ain't that the truth? And the, the, there's, there's people... I'll be, I'll be frank, there's people jumping on the well-being bandwagon. It isn't always helpful. But as you say, there are people delivering stuff that doesn't fit with the context they're delivering it in. Yeah, and it's a very difficult environment to navigate sometimes, and particularly if you're not familiar with the literature, you're not 
and you just want to do something for the sake of, of, well, not for the sake of doing getting up, because that sounds quite disingenuous. And I think there are lots of organizations who really do care for their employees and, and who are willing to invest and, and, and want to, to get things right. But it's about awareness about actually what do we do about this. So that's why a lot of what we do is about trying to yeah improve awareness, whether obviously for our students going to our programs, but also through a lot of the sessions that we do, whether it's lunchtime talks or more bespoke consultancy sessions to try and increase awareness within organizations about, well, why are healthier workplaces important? Why is how work is designed, organized and managed important? How do we measure that? How do we understand what that is and what can we do on the back of that, really? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you're out there spreading this message. And we mentioned that, that a lot of your work is, is related to healthcare settings. Is, is there a particular attraction? We talked about caring for the carers and your initial exploration of perhaps going down the medical route or the clinical psychology. But is there something that keeps you going back to those healthcare settings? Uh, I think we've, we've talked a lot about some of the reasons already. But also I think it's I think it's another way, you know, I talked about focusing on the world of work because it's a public health perspective, trying to prevent people from, from going off, off ill. But the outcomes from the healthcare sector is also another way of improving public health. Because if you have a healthcare system that is functioning, that is doing well and is better able to look after the population, to look after its patients, then that's another way of trying to improve the health and well being of, of everyone. So I guess that's another sideways segment into maybe deep down inside I'm some sort of, maybe I'm a public health person. Mm, maybe, maybe try it on. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So like I said, a lot of the stuff that, that we I've done is, is in and around the healthcare sector. Although I always have to disclaim and say, I've actually never directly worked in healthcare. So I don't know, Ross, if I think you might be in a similar position, but I might be wrong, so please correct me. But like I've never formally been employed as an employee in the NHS. I've worked alongside lots of really wonderful, excellent people, but therefore I cannot claim to even fully understand what it's like to be a healthcare worker here or abroad. Yeah, absolutely the same. I have a great affinity with our healthcare workers and the NHS for the tremendous work they do and the impact they've had on my family, for example, it's, it's personal. And if in some of my work I can support some of those people to maybe enhance their own psychological health and well-being, then I consider that some of the most important work I do. Kevin, can I ask you about themes you're noticing in the, in the workplace? I know some of your research covered the, the pandemic period. And I, personally in my head, I still consider we're in a pandemic period. We're just in a different phase of it. I think... Well, firstly, I, I agree with you that we're in a we're in a different phase of the pandemic as opposed to we're out of a pandemic, and and particularly there's this disconnect with those working in the healthcare sector versus versus those who are not, because yeah, the the experiences from what I understand from from colleagues in the healthcare sector is that we still very much are in a in a pandemic. In terms of themes, I think what what we're seeing is a change. I think work intensification. What we're seeing, I think, is the same types of psychosocial working conditions, but manifesting in different ways. So work intensification is is going up. And I think a, a big reason for that is the, the blurring of boundaries between home and work, but also even going back into the workplace. How do we manage this return to work in, into a physical office workspace? How do we manage hybrid working? How do we manage the workloads that we had during the pandemic? And just to give you a, a simple example of that, is during the pandemic, most people were, were housebound and therefore, you know, you kind of worked 
nine to six, if, if that was what your, your hours were and, and you, you stuck to those hours, then you might do a couple of speaking engagements or go and see uh, some clients. But because you're at home, these were done online. And then before and after that, you fill it, you fill it out with you know, other work duties. But now that we're returning into a, a, a more open environment, people are traveling, people are, are meeting customers, then you travel. You travel to see a customer, you travel to see a client, you travel to a speaking engagement, and then you've got to factor that time in. And that now is seen as time lost. You know, I've, I've been to events, I've spoken to many people who say, actually, you know, now I'm here, it's taken a whole day out of my work. And therefore, I'm sitting here physically, but I'm trying to catch up on all of these emails which are coming in because people are expecting me to be available all of the time. So we haven't adjusted for the workload going back uh, when actually what we're doing is a lot of us have taken a lot more, a lot more on. And it's just sort of this creep that's come in that hasn't really been picked up by many. Yeah, that, that's so interesting and it really resonates with some organisations I'm working with who are saying what worked for us during periods of lockdown and confinement, we're still doing that and it's not appropriate anymore because the context has moved on. But we get easily maybe drawn into these new habits and think they'll keep working even when the context begins to shift. And I think it goes back to something you mentioned about noticing, noticing what's going on around us and a colleague of mine at City, Yuta Tobias Mortlock, she was actually a guest earlier on this season, talked about collective mindfulness and how that can be a great response to organisational stress. It isn't about us sitting alone and meditating. It's about us noticing what's going on around us and noticing how we are showing up as a colleague. Yeah. She calls it next-generation mindfulness, and I think it's so important that we can hone those noticing skills to notice the changes in the environment or the psychosocial context. Yeah, and, and just building on that noticing, I think it's also important that we acknowledge that when we talk about the working environment or workers today, there are so many different groups of people. I think we see it most evidently when we talk about hybrid working or return to work. Some people are, just want to work from home. Some people want to work in the office. Some people want to mix of two. And, and how, do you, how do you balance that? But equally, we see it in other themes as well. So there's been a big emphasis about this awareness of, well, what's important to me? You know, is it, is it work? Why am I working? What's my meaning? What's my purpose? And, you know, can I change my job, change my work hours, change my working conditions on the back of that? without going to a big debate about the great resignation, but there's been lots of movement of, of people people around and some people are rethinking about what's important to them. But equally, there are many other people. We've t we talk about the strikes and the winter of discontent, that people are struggling to get by. So many people are not in that position and don't have that privilege to say, I'm just going to change jobs so that I can find something which benefits my values. Because actually what I need is I need to pay my food bill. I need to pay... My mortgage has gone up. So how do I balance all of that? And I think what we are in danger of doing is that we talk about the workforce in general and don't pick up the nuances of the different working experience that everyone is, is going through. And it can be quite isolating if your voice is not represented. Do, do you think organisations are getting better at considering the whole psychosocial context that they operate in and that they in part they create to be perfectly honest i don't think so and i think we see this in the last few years with this big emphasis on well-being where a lot of the interventions and programs are still very much focused on the individual an organization might say well we've got well-being we've got a well-being policy we've got well-being program we offer 
mindfulness. We've got an employee assistance program. We offer free fruit on a Friday. We have subsidized gym membership. We have private health care. But actually, well-being is a lot more than that. It's about the working environment. It's not taking a step back and say, how are we as an organization responsible? And that could be things from basic things like pay, but also how have we set up the working environment and the expectations that we have for our employees? You know, do we give them an environment that they can flourish, that they can thrive in, that they know what's expected of them, that they're feeling supported, where the workload is appropriate? And I think often the answer is, is not because there isn't really an awareness of that. The Health and Safety Executives Management Standards talks about six broad, and these are very broad components. You know, how demanding is your job? How much control you have? How supported you are in the workplace? How is change managed? How clear your role is? And what's the quality of relationships that you have? It's quite broad, but again, it's a useful marker to get someone or get a team or an organization to reflect around that. Because if you can be more aware of where you sit along these different areas, then it gives you a reason to try and change. If people are saying work's too demanding, how can we try and reduce those demands? If people are saying we haven't got much control or agency, how can we try and empower individuals? If people are saying I'm very unclear about what my roles are, how do we give that people that certainty and that clarity? Mm, that that health and safety executive framework is, is super useful. And it feels like it, I don't know, it feels from my perspective as someone in the field, it doesn't have enough visibility. There are resources there to be had for organizations and the visibility isn't always that clear. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things which is, is quite a shame, really. So the health and safety executives have got a suite of resources, but there are many other agencies as well. So the work that we've done with the European Agency for Safety and Health at Work, they've got something known as the PRIMA EF model, Psychosocial Risk Management at Work, PRIMA. Um, and that, again, has, has a slightly different model, but again, has a lot of resources on, on the back of that that can be tapped into the World Health Organization, the, the recent um, ISO standards as well, are other ways in which to try and create awareness to say, look, we need to be talking about how the workplace is designed, how is it organized, and how is it managed? Because there's no point saying to someone, you know, take better care of yourself, be more resilient, if you then drown them in work. I'll give you a, I'll give you a very simple example. You know, I, I've spoken to, to many nurses in the NHS who've said, Actually, my organization offers me, and you can insert whatever, act, mindfulness, yoga, spin classes, whatever. And how on earth am I going to find 30 minutes to go and do that when I, have got, I haven't got a time to go to the toilet? So it's about managing that, you know. If you are having a well-being offering, are you evaluating about who's taking it up? What's the beneficial impact that, that people are getting out of that? Is it hitting home with the people who need it the most? Gosh, you, you, you're so right. And it feels like we're not always meeting the people where they are. Where maybe as an organization or as a leadership, we're playing sort of buzzword bingo by having the spin class, the fresh fruit, the here's a mindfulness app. But we're not addressing the, the real issues in the psychosocial context. And a sense I have, and I might be wrong or right, is that it can just seem a bit overwhelming to think, Crikey, as an organization, we've got to consider all these factors to look after our people and continue delivering. Yeah, it, it can be. And I think when, when, when we try and work on awareness or when we try and work with, with a team or an organization around that, we actually talk about well-being not being a discrete intervention but being a program. It's something that's continuous 
when an organization says we've got a well-being program we've got a well-being strategy and that's it we've sort of well-being then i'll almost say you haven't because you know well-being and the working environment will continually evolve and, and therefore you need to evolve uh, accordingly but we we take organizations through sort of a five-step process where we talk about um, preparation so you know why are we here what are the issues that you're struggling with what have you already invested in this process what are the resources that are available then we talk about screening and that could be anything a formal risk assessment through a questionnaire focus groups informal discussions and i guess both both these two first stages preparation screening might probably fit under uh, noticing you know it's, it's about helping us notice what's going mm. on over here based on all of the information what should we focus on and then what should we do on on the back of that and maybe it could be something maybe some organizations might start really big and say we'll have a massive organizational restructure although that's probably not the first place that that would start we would typically say you know what's one small issue that you have that you think that we can change that will make a a noticeable difference it's it's interesting in the nhs quite often one of the first places that people want to start is around um, rest facilities and and access to food and, and to food and drink and then we implement we do whatever that is and then we evaluate and that's the crucial thing is say well how do we know it worked Right. What the experience is, not just about, well, are people happier, healthier, have lower sickness, absence, but other things like what's the uptake of it? Who took part? Who didn't take part? Who got missed out by by this? And then we repeat. So by saying that we're going to repeat means we acknowledge, A, we're not going to get it right all the time. We will make mistakes along the way. So we learn and we improve the next time. But also by repeating, we acknowledge to say that, do you know what? We're not going to fix everything all at once. We're going to try and do one thing or a few things, a few small things, and then try and work on those. And as we work on those, eventually that might hopefully give us the momentum to work on other things as well. Hearing you d- describe it, it gives me hope that if I, if I was kind of running an organisation, I'm thinking if I had someone like Kevin working alongside me to support me in this and taking that step-by-step approach and evaluating as, as we go, it feels like such a shift from the sort of buzzword bingo that might just get this off my desk it feels like this is deep fundamental authentic work and it gives me hope do you have that hope for organizations i think i think i've always described myself as a naive optimist and i think i I need that to get through the world because you know there are days where you go through and you work with organizations or with employees and you go what's the point and everything just looks yeah dark despairing cynical but I think I, as a naive optimist, that's what gets me That's what gets me through. But also, if I use the NHS as an example, again, it's not one organisation. It's a massive organisation with so many sub-organisations within it. And we talk about pockets of good practice and pockets of bad practice as well. And it's, it, it's about shining a light on those areas that are doing well and trying to understand you know, why, why might that be, be the case. One of the things that we're working on right now is on a project where we're trying to collect examples of where people have tried to to change their working environments uh, within a healthcare context. Because again, it's very it's very easy to go down the route of say, well, our employees are struggling. Let's offer more mindfulness. I've got no issue with mindfulness whatsoever. You know, I'm just using it as a simple yoga act. Mm whatever bring a dog to work day or something like that along that focus on the individual that has a role to play on the other approach people might say actually the secretary of state or the department of health or the prime minister or nhs england need to step in and give us more more staff more money and and so forth and yes that is also true 
But the question is, what can we do as a team now that might make a difference, that we have a slightly better working environment moving forward? And we've, we've seen examples where teams have changed processes in terms of how work is done so that you know people have a better understanding of what they do or something's done a little bit more efficiently. We've seen examples where people have changed things like rest facilities so that actually we can focus more about being able to self-care when, when we have got the time to look for after ourselves. We've seen examples where people have changed rostering system to say, do you know what? We can, we can create a better roster so that we have better control about when we work and therefore a better work-life balance and everyone's happier on, on the back of that. So these are examples where people have said, these are little things that we can do that make actually a difference to the work experience of everyone in this team or this department or this ward. So you, you're collecting stories of, of what's worked, is that? Yeah, so, so that's what we're doing is we're collecting stories of, of what's worked. We're still collecting stories, mm. so I don't know when this podcast is going out, but if anyone in the NHS has got examples uh, and have got stories to tell, then please do, do reach out. because And that applies even, I mean, for, for this project we focus on the NHS, but that applies to other contexts as well, because equally you might be working for a large university, or you might be working for a large multinational, and you might have formal HR policies or systems which might make work perhaps difficult or challenging. But at a local level, there might be things that can be done. Mm, and it, it brings us back to the, the people doing the jobs are the experts. Yeah, yeah. So working with them to arrive at the solutions. And I think it's also about being transparent and open and saying, we're not going to fix this all at once, but here's what we're doing. We're going to measure it. We'll tell you what we find when we measure it. And then we'll move on to the next thing. Yeah, yeah. Rather than doing it in secrecy and maybe not revealing when things perhaps haven't worked as well. I think it builds that trust and that, that hope in organisations. And I think that not, not work well is really important because we need to learn from failure. We also need to move away from, from looking at a black and white answer to say, did this intervention work? Yes or no? Did we have ROI, return on investment, or did sickness absence rates go down? Hmm. Because things are not black and white. Organizations are such complex situations. And when we talk about evaluating, really what we want to understand is what worked for whom and in what circumstances. So some people will benefit. Who might that be? Why? Who didn't benefit and why might that be? Because it might be a tweak, actually, that, that you, need, you need to do. Uh, uh, you know, as a simple example, you might be running accessions. And uh, you know, I've had feedback on, on examples like this where people say, actually, it's really good but it's not running on, on my site. It's run on the main hospital building or wherever. So I can't access it because it's not being offered to me. How do we then work that out? So it's thinking about who are we missing out? Who has access to it? Why might something not be working? And rather than saying, actually, it's not working, let's throw it out completely. It's more about adapting what we're, what we're already doing. Or as a, as a different one, we talk about we can have a lot we can have a whole discussion on policies um i do think it's important that an organization has policies to identify you know what problems might be and what the solutions might be and and i did some work um some training and, and there was a, a senior director from an nhs lab and he said i run this whole lab manage it and i've got no idea what my responsibilities are what we do when someone says you know i'm being signed off with stress or, or, or etc so he says this is a takeaway we're going to write a stress policy. I said, fantastic. Two weeks later, he emails me and says, dear Kevin, spoke to HR, we have a stress policy. So 
in that situation, the case is, well, we're not going to reinvent the wheel and write one, but actually we're going to reflect on why is it the case that your senior leaders in your organizations are not aware of what policies exist and don't exist. So it's about tweaking what we're doing as opposed to trying to do something brand new. It, it so resonates with me hearing you talk. It's such a treat because, yeah, quite often as the policymaker, we can focus all the effort and energy and attention in developing this policy. And we might, if we're doing our policy development in a great way, we'll go and consult with people and, and get input. And then we can be so, like, either exhausted or chuffed when we finished it. We don't, we don't put the same energy into saying, hey, we've got this policy. Yeah. So I, I do believe it's those tweaks that's so interesting. And I think it's powerful in terms of two ways. One, it shows that when we talk about, because I talk a lot about organizational primary interventions, and people think mm. I'm talking about big restructurers and stuff like that. In some situations, maybe, if you have the resources. But also small things can go a long way in, in making a change, to, you know, to, to let people feel like they're being listened to, that they're being, that they're being heard. But equally, and that goes back to that, that noticing stage, when we talk about preparing or screening for intervention, the question is, what are we already doing? And is it working or is it not working? Lots of organizations are investing lots of resources in health and well-being. How do you know it's working? Mm. I think it's that preparedness to sit with that discomfort of holding a mirror to yourself as an organization and saying, come on, let's have a look on what is working and what isn't working, rather than saying, da-da, everyone's got a mindfulness app. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. And, and even other things, you might be able to look and say, the whole organization has access to a mindfulness app or other apps exist as well. But what's the usage of it? What's the uptake um, of yeah. that as well? So that's something to, to reflect upon because otherwise, if you're only doing things in, as an organization, we've all come across this in organizations, say, look, here's 10 pages of stuff that we're doing for our staff well-being. And the question is, how do you know it's working? Are you evaluating any of that? And they go, I don't know. And then, then what? why are you doing it? You, you're taking me way back, probably 20 odd years. I worked in the civil service and I was in a team that was managing the contract with the employee assistance program. They provided us with data on who'd accessed it from which broad work area. It was a big government department. And the usage stats were pitiful and one set of people interpreted that as great our people don't need the support whereas i got a bit of a gob on and saying well why are people using it perhaps they don't know about it or perhaps they feel some sort of stigma in approaching it even though it's all anonymous approaching it and using it perhaps they feel that someone might find out or and it might reflect on them and i went on a bit of a mini campaign talking about it and and seeing if anyone would be willing to talk about how they'd access the service and what they'd found useful about it. And, it. and it helped a little bit, but I think people can still feel that stigma and that they're completely blind to it. But it can give an organization that comfort of, hey, we've got an employee assistance program. I've kind of outsourced my anxiety on that. Yeah, and I think it's, it's almost saying that as an organization, have we, that's a very defensive position that, that, protected, that protected space. Uh, we've got my, my barriers in place and it's almost as an organization have we got a stress or well-being policy have we got mental health first aid have we got access to employee assistance program occupational health something like that and they can say look we've got those three this is the basic that we need we've ticked the boxes and if you're saying that that is your well-being approach then actually that's not the case and i think well-being actually is about how well the organization is run and i'll even challenge organizations to say look if you are spending five-figure sums, six-figure sums on an app 
or access to an employee assistance program. And if your usage statistics are very low, my challenge would then be, is it worth canceling that contract if your staff are talking about workload issues and hiring more staff? Might that perhaps be, and again, it varies from context to context. In some situations, the answer would be no. But in some situations, the staff will probably be better off having an extra colleague as opposed to having access to an app. Gosh, it's complex. It's complex, <laughs> but also simple. Yeah, and I am grateful for your naive optimism as well that keeps you going. How, how do you disconnect from work, Kevin? How do I disconnect from work? Well, I, <laughs> I think... I imagine with a three-year-old, yeah, there's, a, th- there's a ready-made source of disconnection there. That, that, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. So, yeah, with, with a three-year-old. <laughs> I, I think that, that's helped. So, I mean, on a, on a more personal level, I do try and keep weekends off completely. And, and that is family time to try and, try and balance on that. But I also have to hold my hand up and say, it's something that also I need to make sure that I disconnect. Um, it was sort of halfway on one of the ways, maybe the second or the third wave of the or third lockdown that we were in, where, where my wife forwards me an email that she got from her organization about staff well-being. And she kind of forwarded it on to me and says, I know you're the expert on this, but you might want to have a look at this. And it was the email header was, you know, looking after your work-life balance. <laughs> so I was a bit like, touche. <laughs> um, but I think it's it's about... Yeah, well, talking a lot about act, it's about noticing and actually and being being mindful. And I think it's going back to the song that I shared, The Nights. You know, when I look back at the end of my life, what is it that I want to be remembered for? Yeah, work's a big part of who I am, but also I've got other responsibilities and interests as well. And um, whether that is my family, scouts, I do enjoy other things as well, sports. So I'm trying to find time for all of that too. Being purposeful, mm. being mindful, being present. Now, Kevin, I wonder if you have a takeaway for the pea soup. Is anything for them to, to reflect on? I think one of the main, well, say two takeaways, really. One is recognizing that we're the product of, of our environment. So staff well-being, but also productivity and whether that is um, patient care, share prices, how many widgets that's being made is all reliant on the work environment. So we need to create better and healthier working conditions for for everybody and we can start simple as i said work on something recognize that it's a process we will make mistakes and the next iteration just try and do a little bit better than than what you did did the first time and i suppose one question to reflect on that often invite teams to reflect on is to say look as a team if there's one thing across the next month that we could change what might that be and if you want to think about that from an individual perspective as well you could think about that you know as an individual me if there's one thing that I could change in relation to my work over the next month that will make work better for me, what would that be? Beautiful. I think that's really powerful. And like you say, it's it's simple, yet it's tough. But I love, I love the framing of that, that we can really just reflect on one difference we can make either at the team level or the individual level. Start small, but start is basically what I would say. Yeah, I love that. Kevin, thanks so much for joining me on People Soup. It's been a truly thought-provoking, insightful, engaging chat. You've really fed my inner geek. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Ross, for the invite. Thank you, P-Supers, for hanging until the very end. And um, if anyone, I guess, has any questions or comments, I'm always open for people to, to reach out. And if people have stories from the NHS or elsewhere about what's worked in, in terms of changes, 
then your your email box is open. Yes, please do. Please do reach out. P-Supers, that's it. Part two in the bag. Thanks so much to Kevin. I'm so grateful for his generosity, reflections, and his wisdom. We'd love to get your reviews, so let us know what you think on the socials or drop me an email or even a voice note on WhatsApp. You can find the show notes on our Captivate site, our new platform, which is peoplesoup.captivate.fm or via my website at rossmackintosh.co.uk. If you like this episode of the podcast, please could you do three things. Number one, share it with one other person. Number two, subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review, whatever platform you're on, and particularly if you're on Apple Podcasts. The Apple charts are really important in the podcast industry. And number three, share the heck out of it on the socials. This will all help us reach more people with stuff that could be useful. I love to hear from you, and you can get in touch at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we are at peoplesouppod. On Instagram, at people.soup. And on Facebook, we are at peoplesouppod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic and Alex Engelberg for his vocals. Most of all, dear listener, thanks to you. Look after yourselves, P-Supers, and bye for now. I did my MSc at Nottingham, as I said, and I took three years out doing the various placements and stuff and just getting work experience. So I was three years out, and everyone else was pretty much fresh off their undergrads, and they called me Grandpa on my program. <laughs> Ooh, burn. Um, and where else, if I'd gone to Birkbag, I would be one of the youngest. You'd be whippersnapper if, if at Birkbag. If I go to Birkbag now as a student on, on my MSc program, I would still be, I think, below the average age. Yeah, you would be one of the, the kids, the cool kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the kids, but I don't know if cool is necessarily the right oh.